theyeshiva.net. Here's the deal. There's something called today kids at risk. It's a bad word. There's no such a thing. No kids at risk. They're not kids at risk. They're kids in pain. You're a twisted parent. God bless you. So you'll hear things you know about. You read the Tisha B'Av letter? There's kids at risk, it's a cute word, but it's not real. In 95% of the case, it's not real. It's kids in pain. It's kids in pain. What do I mean? What do I mean by this? The fact remains as follows. There are a percentage of children who are in pain, especially the years when we could see it. When they're children, they're also in pain, but they repress it wonderfully. As teenagers, it often emerges. Why are they in pain? It could be for many reasons, and I'm not here to give all the statistics and the studies. You could read about it and learn about it, and there's much more that still has to come out. One, one major factor, although we're not going to be exploring this today, has to do with abuse. The issue of molestation has been under the rug for many, many decades, and it affected many, many children. There's people sitting here in this room who know about this not secondhand, but firsthand. And these are things with girls and with boys that sometimes come out at the age of 25 and sometimes at the age of 35. When children are touched in inappropriate places, it can destroy their core, their self-confidence, and their ability to have intimate relationships with other people. Sometimes it comes out a year after marriage when the chassan or kala come and say there is no relationship between the chassan and the kala physical and this is what comes out. This is one major issue. Another major issue is there are other forms of abuse. There's verbal abuse, there's emotional abuse, there's houses that are very dysfunctional. There are houses that go through trauma. Sometimes it's nobody's fault. It's things that happen to certain families and a child suffers terribly. There's another issue. Children who never got the skills or tools to be able to be successful in school, in yeshivas, or in seminaries, or in chadar, whatever it is, and for five, ten years, they feel like losers constantly. That creates a lot of pain. That creates a lot of pain. Imagine you're in a place, and you know your destiny is, you'll never be able to succeed. Imagine you take me, I take you, and I put you into a classroom for ten years with a French professor who speaks only French, and unlike uh, some of the women here, I don't know a word of French. The only words I understand my teacher tell me is bon voyage. And for 10 years, do you know there are boys that are sitting in yeshiva who have that experience? They may understand English or Yiddish, but they don't understand because they don't know Ivarit. Because when they were 7 years old, or 5 years old, or 4 years old, nobody noticed that they were completely not suitable 
to be able to go through the process of learning. And in yeshiva, it's rigorous, rigorous learning. And if you don't have all the tools, you're completely perceived as a failure. How long can you do it for? And then you blame yourself. You feel like a horrible person. By the time you're 15, you tell yourself, in this world, I will be a loser of losers. Especially if you've been diagnosed at the age of six days as ADD and ADHD. ADHD being the acronym of attention deficit. Hey, donuts. And suddenly you have very creative and brilliant kids, but they don't fit into the cookie cutter model, or it's extremely boring and monotonous, and at some point they feel very, very desperate. There's also another issue, and that has to do with spirituality and morality. Very often there are cookie-cutter model standards in many educational institutions, and only a child who fits, up, fits into all the expectations is seen as the good, great, Hasidish, from religious, ben Bach. And if he or she violates those rules, and they're right away deemed as the black sheep in the class, without regard to their individual journeys or struggles or challenges, here too, there's a lot of, lot of pain that can be inflicted upon them. These are all very different factors. And true, molestation ranks right above. That's the first. Because that, that's very, very deep. That's deeper than a lot of other stuff. But these other factors have to be considered in this whole process. And when our children are acting in different ways, I could look at the external facts, or I can zoom in and identify what is happening in their soul. And it's not easy. We would often like a quick fix. We'll bribe our kids and we'll say, do this and this, just finish the system and give me machas. But sometimes there's something brewing very, very deep. It may not be so, it may be very deep, it may not be so deep, but I have to be sensitive to it. And the last mistake I can make, the worst mistake I can make is become fixated on my child living up to my initial expectations rather than me becoming fixated on how my child can become the great human being that he or she really is. And there's a world of difference between them. I'm going to tell you a very sad story I once read about a veteran from Vietnam who calls his dad Friday and he says, Dad, I'm back from Vietnam. I'm coming home. I survived. Dad says, wow, that's so great. Thank God. Me and my, your mother will be so happy to see you. He says, Dad, you know, in my platoon, I have become best friends with another soldier who stepped on a mine and he lost an arm. He lost a leg. He has no family to come home to. He has no family. Can I bring him home with me? He's my best friend. Dad says it's not practical. He's going to be a terrible burden for us. Son says, Dad, you don't know. You will fall in love with this boy. He is such a glowing soul. His father says, I don't doubt that he's a glowing soul. But I have to be very honest with you. We're going to be nice to him on the outside. On the inside, we're going to curse the day that we had to take him into the house because it's just going to be a terrible, terrible, terrible burden. He's a veteran. The government will sponsor him. We'll find a great home where they can take care of him with such tremendous disabilities. But it's really, our house is not the place for it. For it. You, can, you can go visit him. He pleads. He asks. His father says, listen, I'm sure he's a great kid. But I have to tell you that you, my mother, your mother and me are going to resent this child deep down. Okay. The soldier hangs up. 
Monday, the father gets a call from the police. They need him to come identify a body. There was a veteran who came back from Vietnam. He killed himself over the weekend. They think it's his son. He comes, he identifies the body. It's his son. And he sees that his son was missing the arm. And his son was missing the leg. His son wasn't talking about his best friend. He was talking about himself. God forbid to judge anybody in any situation. The point is very simple. When I say I love my child, what does that mean? There was a philosopher who said, we don't love other people, we love our version of them. Do you love your child or do you love your version of your child? If you're going to love only your version of your child, it's going to be very, very difficult because our children have their own souls and have their own journeys. I want to challenge my child. I want to discipline my child. I want to educate my child. But most importantly, I need to be able to respect where my child is, who my child is, what his or her blessings and challenges are, and not try to impose my life, my expectations on this child. I'm going to lose that person. If a child was a computer, I can do it, but a child is a person. Do I want to lose my child? Or do I want to build a relationship with my child? The other Shabbos in Lux, as I said, of art. Maybe one of the most important Werther insights in Chinuch. When Yosef was in Egypt and Poitifer's wife tries to seduce him, what does the Pasuk say? By Yemain, he refused. And what gave him the ability to refuse? He saw the image of Yaakov, his father. He saw the image of Yaakov, his father. What does this mean? He didn't know what Yaakov looked like. He was his son. He lived with him 17 years. What it means is, back to the Chumash experts, the word used by Yosef is Vayimoyin, he refused. When is the word Vayimoyin used right before that? Once more. When Yosef, very good, Vayimoyin lehisnachin, they told Yaakov, Yosef is dead. Vayimoyin, he refused to be comforted. Why did he refuse to be comforted? So the Gemara says, Hashem made when somebody dies, we can move on. Somebody lives, you can't move on. Yosef was not dead, he was alive. Yaakov can't be comforted. Chazal say when Yaakov was mourning Yosef's perceived death, all his sons and all of his daughters came to comfort him. And Chazal say, where were his daughters? We never knew that Yaakov has daughters. And the Rechaim says that that was the way they comforted him. All the daughters came and all the sons came. They were sitting at the Shabbos table, you can imagine. You have Yaakov, you have 11 boys, you have 11 girls. You have dozens of Einaklach, all with Grace Yamalkus and big tzitzis. And when Yaakov was crying about Yosef, they said, Yaakov, there's always one black sheep in the family, but look at the Mishpacha, look how beautiful. 11 Kindalach, 11 boys, 11 girls. This one is a Rosh Koylo. This one finished off Yomi seven times. This one is a multi-millionaire, supports 200 yeshivas. 
This one is a Rosh Hashiva, this one is a Tzaddik, this one founded Hatzalah, this one is a big Askin, this one is Mamasha Goymal Chasid. Look at the beautiful family. There's one kid, one kid, Yosef, there's always one family. Well, the best families are Williamsburg and Lakewood and Muncie and Cronites and Bar Park and Flatbush and Yerushalayim. The best families, one kid, so what? So therefore, it's not good. Come on, Yaakov, wake up and smell the coffee. You got 22 beautiful kids, boys and girls. And look at the Shaduchim that your girls made. The best of the best to find the younger light. Mamish, Gavaldik. So Yosef, yeah. Yosef went into a pit. You know which pit? There's a pit of addiction. Yosef was sold into slavery. You know what type of slavery? Addiction. One kid. But you know what Yaakov said? He refused to be comforted. You know why? The Gemara says, Yaakov said, You don't know my Yosef. He's not dead. He's alive. I have not given up hope on him and I will not be comforted. For losing him because he's not lost. Yaakov never stopped believing in his child. And you know what's the next scene? Yosef refuses to succumb to Paitifar's wife. You know why? Because Yaakov refused to stop believing in Yosef. Yosef refused to sell his soul to the devil. Because Yosef in Egypt had a father who believed in him. That's the meaning. He saw the image of Yaakov, his father. What's the image that he saw? He saw that there's a father who lives far away who still believes in the infinite value and dignity of this child. A father and a mother will never sever the cords of this child. A father and a mother who really believe in the holiness, in the godliness, in the kedusha, in the depth, and the majesty of this child. And those who will not say, I'll dismiss this child, I'll throw them out of the house, I'll get rid of them, I don't want a relationship with you, you're an embarrassment for the family, you're a horrible person, you're destroying our life, you're ruining all the shidduchim. They told Yaakov to do that. Vayimayin, he refused. The word Vayimayin comes from which word? Emuna. Trust, faith, belief in that child. Yaakov knew Yosef. Yaakov knew that Yosef wasn't a bad kid. The fact remains today. Ask any mother or father. The disproportionate amount of children who are kids at risk. I ask you now a question. Are the brighter ones in the family or not the brighter ones in the family? The answer is the brighter ones in the family. It's the kids who were kinder or sensitive as children or selfish and insensitive. The ones who were kind and sensitive. That's a fact. Go to any family. So what happened here? The math doesn't match. Ask any mother. He'll say when he was seven, he was a malach. He was an angel. He was my angel. And my brightest, smartest kid. So what happened here? It's not them that we do injustice to. They're for sure. Also ourselves. Because we don't have the courage to expand our horizons and to be able to see the divine in the heart of this child. This doesn't mean it's not sometimes a painful process. It may be a painful process. But I have to work on myself to tell myself. Do I want to remain imprisoned in my dreams and expectations? And sever my cords with my children? Or that will never ever happen. Yaakov taught not to sever the cords. And he allowed Yosef not only to be saved, but to rise up and ultimately to become a source of inspiration to the whole family. He is the one who forgives his brothers. He is the one who becomes the most wholesome. This is what Yaakov taught. And that's why on Vayimayin there's a shalshelis. 
Why? Because his father refused to cut the chain, to cut the shalshelis between Yosef and his past. Refused to do it. My friend Avi Fishoff, who lives in Flatbush and deals with kids at pain, sent me a clip of a mother. A mother is speaking to him in a recording and he sent it to me. She wrote that her daughter has strayed far off from Judaism to a point of dysfunctionality. Complete dysfunctionality. And, uh, and one night, her daughter, in a lot of pain, decided to take her life. And she got the pills, and she was emptying out tablet after, you heard the recording, tablet after tablet after tablet. And in the middle, she needed more water, so she went to the sink. And that moment, her, her, her mother would call her every single night. And the message her mother would tell her is, I'm here for you, I cherish you, the door is always open, what do you need, tell me. And when she went to get the water, her mother gave her nightly call. And on her phone, the picture of the caller shows up. So her mother's picture showed up. So she told her mother what she's doing. So her mother called for help, and they stopped it, and the girl survived. The girl is alive. And the girl said to her mother, I was in the middle of doing it. I was half through the bottle. And then when I saw your picture... I thought to myself, if I die, is there anybody who's going to be in pain? My father will probably be happy. My brothers will probably say, Baruch Hashem, the blemish of the family is gone. Most people I know will say, yeah, it's good she's gone, you know? We'll cry a little bit, but it's fine, it's over. But I knew that you will actually suffer for the rest of your life. And that's why I didn't do it. And I heard this from the mother's mouth in the recording, and I realized this is the story. Yosef saw the image of his father, and she saw the image of her mother. I was sitting at a workshop in Flatbush one night, with, uh, one day, a whole Sunday, with, I don't know, maybe a hundred couples, and rabbis and educators. And there was a couple there from Satmer. Satmer Hasidim. They live in Williamsburg. And... Uh, their child at 15 or 16 uh, left the house. He actually didn't leave the house, but he would leave the house every night at 11 o'clock and come back 7 o'clock in the morning, which is a mother's and father's nightmare. And who you hang out with from 11 o'clock at night till 7 in the morning? Probably not, uh, you know, the greatest angels of the city. At least on the surface. And the relationship was horrible. The father would scream and he would scream and mother would cry. It was just horrible. And they decided to do something very, very extreme. Now, as I said in the beginning, these are very individual stories and they apply to every case differently. I'm just explaining to you a perspective, not telling you what to do in your case or other cases. They decided to do the exact opposite. They decided this kid lived in the house and he always wanted a huge plasma TV. A huge plasma. So they, satme couple, real echt satme, chassidr shayidin from Milmesburg. But for them, a TV in the house, Chveis would be like you'll raise a lion in your house, you know? A lioness. It was completely, completely out of the picture. Very, very Hasidic Jews. And very from. And uh, they bought this kid, <laughs> I happened to see it, this 85 inch screen. I couldn't fit it into my house. 
And uh, they wrap it up with a letter from the father and a letter from the mother. And because they have a video in the rooms over there, so uh, after it happened, the child allowed them to show the video, and I saw the video. And he comes home one night, 10 o'clock at night. He goes into his room, his bedroom, and he sees this huge gift with letters. He opens up the gift, plasma, TV, letters from his father and his mother. They write to him as follows. We have been clueless as to how much pain you have been in from the age of eight. We didn't know. And therefore we mistreated you. We were never really here for you in your pain. And tonight we want to apologize. And the father says, from today on everything will change. I love you unconditionally. There's nothing you can do that will destroy that love. And I will be here for you. And to show it to you, I'm buying what you want right here. And I hope from now on you remember you're my child forever. And my love will never change. The mother wrote him her letter. He finishes reading both letters. Hasn't hugged his mother since the age of six, since he was molested. Goes over to his mother and hugs her. They're both crying. He takes his finger. I saw this on video. He takes his finger, wipes one of the tears of his mother, puts it in his pocket. His mother says, what are you doing? He says, I'm storing one of your tears in my pocket. Then goes over to his father, embraces him for like four minutes. The video ends. I go over to the couple. They're standing right there. I look at them. I'm like, what's this all about? You had to buy him a plasma TV? And the mother looks at me and said, I had no way of showing that child that I love him unconditionally if I would not buy him this Meshuggah toy. I had no way. I had to prove to him, I had to prove to him that I'm not here for him on my terms. I'm here, I'm here for him on his terms. I say, what happened since? She says, unbelievable. We have a child. We have our child back. Did he jump into the mikveh? Does he put on four pairs of tefillin? No. Did he grow long pairs with a beard? He did not, but we have a child. And she tells me, this happened six months ago. He says, he comes now every Shabbos for the meal. He started to put on tefillin. So I say, does he still go out at night? The mother says, he goes out every night, 11 o'clock. I say, what do you do? She says, we have a neighbor whose son also goes out. And I'll tell you the difference. It used to be in both houses the same thing. 11 o'clock, my husband would scream at him. He would use certain words to my husband. I'm not going to repeat the words. Mother would cry, do you really have to go? He would say, ma, leave me alone. He would leave the house. Now, 11 o'clock when he leaves, I say, Yankee. Gainisht, mommy baked special cookies for you. You're going to be hungry in the middle of the night. I give him a lot of cookies. I say, these are good cookies, have them. My husband goes over to him and says, listen, my boy, have fun. Remember, my cell phone is open 24 hours a day. You dare hesitate to call me if you need anything. Two, three, four, five in the morning. I don't care where you are. I don't care with who you are. If you or your friends need anything, you make sure to call me. I want to hear what's happening with you and I will run right over to help you. And he gives him a hug every single night. She says, but six months later, my boy puts on tefillin and he comes home every Shabbos. What they understood was two things. Number one, our kids are not bad. No such a thing as an evil kid. Our kids have journeys. 
And sometimes those journeys are complicated. Sometimes there's a lot of pain. Sometimes a lot of agony. Sometimes there's misunderstanding. Sometimes they feel like failures. They're not bad and evil. And I have to tune into that. And number two, never ever stop believing in your child. Never ever sever those cords. Never ever give up. Never ever throw them out of your life. Never ever sacrifice their soul and their godliness for your perceived expectations or for your standing in the community or for certain social expectations. Every story is different and every case is different. But this taught me a very, very profound lesson. Preventive medicine is always much better than post-illness medicine. Those of us who have little kids hopefully won't have to reach this stage. But those who have reached this stage ought to remember this Vayimoyin. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.